Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast. And as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. It's been three and a half years since Wendy Flanagan's daughter, Alexandra, disappeared. Her family and friends and police searched throughout the summer of 2007, hoping for a happy ending. In my opinion, because she was so friendly, it could have been anybody. It could have been a total stranger. Alexandra Flanagan was last seen waving goodbye to friends at Sunnydale Park in Barrie, Ontario on July 8, 2007. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. A long story how I came across today's case. So the short version is that I've been working on a case with a family. That case is kind of on hold, but um, I was told about this case and now I'm covering it because I don't think that many of us, particularly here in Western Canada, have heard about it and I think that it really deserves to be heard. It is rather quite disturbing um, and I really dislike the animal that we're going to be talking about today. But when I first Googled the case, which of course is the first thing I do whenever any of you suggest a case to me, and the first picture that came up that I saw, I knew I had to cover her case for her because, my God, what a firecracker of a woman. Like, you could just see it. They always say that a person, you know, lit up a room, but even just from the pictures that you could see that this woman didn't just light up a room like she lit it on fire and I mean that in a very good way. This is the murder of Alexander Flanagan.
On the afternoon of October 4th, 2007, a woman walking her dog through Lackey's Bush on the south end of Barrie, Ontario. Uh, it's a wooded park area with like trails. She stumbled upon what looked like a human bone off just off the path. Um, and like any good crime junkie, she called the police to search the area. Now, initially upon seeing the bone, they figured it was likely going to turn out to be like leg bone of a deer. But nearby, they also found a skull, which was clearly human. So the bones were shipped off to forensic and dental records confirmed that they were from a missing 33-year-old woman named Alexandra Flanagan. Alexandra, who most people just called Alex, was born on November 17th in 1973. One report I heard, uh, it was a podcast called Beyond the Rainbow, said that she had been adopted, but I wasn't able to confirm that fact anywhere, and it, it doesn't really matter because her parents were Wendy and Glenn, and she had two sisters, Michelle and Noelle. And she grew up in Barrie, Ontario, and from the day she was born, she was an absolute spitfire. She packed more personality into her small five foot one frame than all of the Spice Girls put together. I mean, I'm sure some of you remember the Spice Girls. I'm probably aging myself there. She had hair that was, it was sort of blonde, but it just had that, that hint of ginger to just sort of match her fiery personality and a smile that just was as wide as you could possibly imagine. Her mom, Wendy, said that she was actually like a cat with nine lives, and she had been hit by a car twice, not, fortunately, not on the same day. Once when she was on her bike, um, her bike was completely totaled, but she walked away fairly unscathed, and then another time she was clipped by a truck that was going by, uh, and again, she she was fine. Um, and then the day after her parents moved out to Mississauga, she shows up on their doorstep to surprise them and find that her parents find out that she had actually hitchhiked her way there, which of course gave her mom a migraine and total anxiety. Uh, Alex was just fearless, confident, full of boundless energy and life and she was extremely outgoing and would befriend anyone if there were 20 empty seats on a bus she would sit right next to you and entertain you and make you feel like you had known her forever but as we're going to see a little bit later this fearless outgoing personality also led her to be a little too trusting of people at times as an adult she worked as a hairdresser and was a I mean obviously a customer favorite due to her chatty, bubbly personality. Uh, she had more friends than you could count, and so I would imagine her phone was just constantly lighting up with notifications. She was also a, a loving cat mom. She had two cats named Oliver and Mystic, which I just love because I happen to have a kitty cat named Oliver. And she absolutely loved her cats, and like most of us cat lovers, she spoiled and doted on her kitty cats. On the night of Sunday, July 8th, 2007, after an evening out with some friends, so Alex was walked through Sunnydale Park with her friend Scott Davidson, and they parted ways near the edge of the park, and Alex just waved to him and then headed off the, it was a couple more blocks to her place. 
The following weekend, the Flanagan family was celebrating the christening of Alex's new nephew. But while they were sitting in the church and just waiting and waiting and waiting for her to show up, Wendy started to get a little bit concerned that she wasn't answering her phone and that nobody had had heard from her, which was, of course, really odd because she kept in touch very regularly. I phoned her and I phoned her. Her answering machine went on. And... Um... I guess in the middle of the week we found out that she hadn't shown up for work, so we got really concerned. So I went to, uh, Michelle and I reported her to the police, missing, as a missing person. Um, we, we first, the police went in first, so we were just hoping, you know, maybe she, something had happened in the apartment. Um, so it was sort of a relief that way. But when we went to the door, we heard the cats, and my sister, one thing she is obsessed with is her cats. Like, she would never leave them um, like that, uh, with no food, no water. So we knew she hadn't been there pretty well since the last time any of us had talked around on Saturday that um, she hadn't been home. And if Alex did go somewhere, she would have had either somebody, us check in with the cats, or she would have left tons of food. There was no water and no food, so we knew definitely she had not been back to the apartment. Wellness checks are really strange to me. Sometimes you hear of them doing a check and then actually entering the residence, but then in others, like in Taylor's case, they just knock, and if nobody answers, they they just say, well, if no one's home, there's nothing else they can do. I'm not really sure on what the circumstances are different. It might be that um, they were concerned about a medical issue because of the cats. I'm not sure, but you'd always be concerned about a medical issue. So I, I don't really understand the difference. Anyways. The police did issue a missing persons report, but with adults, like you're allowed to go missing of your own accord if you so want to. And I, I don't think that the police necessarily took her, her report too seriously. I mean, her, she had a very free spirited nature. Um, so I think that they might've just sort of thought maybe she decided to start a new life or just, you know, took off somewhere for, um, to have a bit of fun. But of course, the, but the family knew better. And of course they took to Facebook to try and locate her. And then three months of completely sleepless nice nights ensued until her skull and one leg bone was found in Lackey's bush in October. Somebody did phone me um, and said that um, they had uh, phoned, they had found a light bone, but they thought it could be a deer. Um, but I had this feeling it wasn't a deer because um, I had this feeling it was Alex. It was, uh, and then we found out it was Alex a few days later, um, and it was just devastating. You know, we were always hoping she'd be alive. She'd show up somewhere. Maybe somebody had her. Um, they would release her. But deep down in my heart, I knew something had happened to her. Yeah, it was hard. Sorry. But um, I guess we had hoped she, you know, she just took off or, you know, took a, had enough and just took off, been irresponsible. But um, it was a bad time because I just gave birth to him. She just had a baby the day before, and so we were in the hospital. Nobody really told me, but we didn't want to upset her, you know, because it was um, October third. She had a little boy, and then and October fourth. That's when they found uh, some remains, wasn't? It? Yeah. Oh, so it wasn't very good. And then you know you have to wait for the police to confirm that it was Alex, but we all knew it was Alex. Just I guess hoping maybe that it was just a, a deer or something. But I guess at that point. We knew Alex hadn't been in contact, and something definitely could have happened. She would not have done that. And then, you know, just, and it wasn't good. It was terrible. And then this past February, um, some other remains were found. Um, 
and they don't have all of her remains right now. We don't know where they are or who's done this. Um, Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, if somebody is outgoing and with as many friends and connections that Alex did, tracking down a suspect wasn't going to be a particularly easy task. But after pulling Alex's phone records, they did notice that she had received seven text messages from a 25-year-old man named Andrew Keene. Uh, now, all of the texts were like they came in one after another, and they were all unanswered until about 10 p.m. And one of the text messages was addressed, Hi, Sexy Lexi, uh, and then asked her if she wanted to hook up while his wife was away. Now, there's a couple things to mention here. Well, first of all, Alex identified as a lesbian, so I don't think that she would have been particularly interested in Andrew in any kind of sexual way. But they were friends. Uh, now, I've had friends that were uh, that were gay, and it, it's sort of when you have friends that you feel that kind of safe around, you get you're kind of flirty with each other, right? Like, like I've had male you know, friends that are gay, that'll say things like, Hey, gorgeous, or, you know, something like that. So it's, it's, I think it's different when it's a, um, a gay friend. It's, it's not creepy. It's just like flirty fun. And so I think that like, this is just my, uh, the way I look at it is I think that Alex was probably used to that, um, from some guy friends. Now, Andrew was aware that she was gay and he was also married. Um, and because of course, Alex was so fearless and trusting. I don't think that she would have thought anything about his text messages, having that kind of tone to it. At least I don't think she would have taken it as a, a creepy sexual in, innuendo tone. I think she would have just taken it as fun. Um, and she did finally answer his text. Uh, and we do know later that she did go to his place. Now, almost certainly not to hook up, um, but maybe just to say hi. Now, Andrew says later that she was looking for ecstasy. Um, but I personally know what it's like to have someone insinuate that your loved one was more into drugs than they really were. So I'm not going to go with that. Um, and we also learn later that Andrew had a little bit of a a wild side to him. Now there was a report of 
a sex worker that she testified at the preliminary hearing, but it was never something that the jury heard. And she had testified that she had called Andrew's cell phone on that evening of July 8th. Um, I don't know if it was a direct call or if she was like returning one of his calls, but she worked under the name of Ultimate Chamel. Now that is spelt she male. And Andrew had been known to patron sex workers. So, you know, he's already a bit of a creep. Now, I don't have any issue with people that work in the sex trade. I know that um, for a lot of people that is just, that is due to circumstances. That is just how they um, support themselves. But I do have an issue with people who actually are customers of people in the sex trade. Um, And I'm allowed to have that opinion because it is just my opinion. Um, but I don't think that Alex knew that he was creepy like that and that he um, used prostitutes and that. Now, the text messages are not fully detailed, so we don't actually know the exact conversation or the tone of it. Uh, we just know that she did answer the text at 10 p.m. and that she did go to his place at around that time. So because of these text messages, they do, of course, hone in on Andrew. And he was quite cooperative when they first interviewed him. Now, he at first said that he never saw her that weekend at all, um, that it was just a series of text messages. He says, quote, I swear on the life of my unborn child, I had nothing to do with it. But the police didn't really buy that. And so they got a search warrant to search his place in Innisfil. No, it's Innisfil in Ontario, not Alberta. And the only things that they found were a couple of knives and then a hockey bag and the hockey bag just had like a trace amount of blood on the inside lining and that was a match to Alex but although it was it was technically enough that they could have made an arrest and it certainly made him suspicious they didn't think that they had enough to actually get a conviction on him And in February of 2008, more parts of Alex's body were found near Johnson's Beach, which is just outside the city's core, uh, sort of on the shore there of Kempenfelt Bay. Now, her torso was still missing. It would be one thing if somebody had called and said, you know, Alex had been in an accident. That would be horrible, too. But she was missing, and then all of a sudden, you know, one set of remains, and then we didn't know maybe animals had gotten to her, you know, which would be hopefully the best scenario. And then now to find another location. The locations are yeah, a little bit far apart. Eight miles or eight kilometers. Yeah, something like that. Seven kilometers, five kilometers. I mean, something strange is it's going not. on. Yeah, so now it's worse because now we know she was dismembered and is there a third or fourth spot? And so obviously this person or people have put thought into disposing of her and it's just, you know, it's terrible. It's absolutely devastating. I can't imagine why um, anybody would do that to her, um, number one, and number two, to do what they did to her body is horrendous. I mean, I just don't understand. She was like such a lovable person and she would be kind to anybody. Um, and she would, t- you know, talk to anybody or help anybody. She was just, she really was a good person. We need justice for Alex. Alex can't speak for herself, so um, we can't bring Alex back. Um, so the next best thing would be for these pe- this person or persons to be 
um, caught. Um, it would be a, some kind of justice. It will never give us complete closure um, because when you lose a child, you can never have closure. Um, but we need to get, we can't have anything. We can't have a, a, a burial. We can't have, we're just in limbo all the time because we don't know where we're at. So all they really could do at that time was keep him under surveillance and hope that he screwed up. And for almost four years, as far as Alex's family was concerned, that yes, he was probably the one that had done it, but the case had essentially gone cold because they just didn't have enough evidence. But what the family didn't know was that Mr. Big was about to make his appearance. Now, why the police waited four years to do a Mr. Big sting, I mean, obviously I don't know for sure, but it likely had to do with some money and funding issues. Mr. Big stings are, well, they're very expensive. They take a lot of preparation. A lot of research goes into them. They're very intricately planned. Um, They can also obviously be very dangerous. So they need to work and be pulled off seamlessly. So I imagine there's a lot of preparation, like probably four years of preparation that would go into them. And at that time, Toronto Constable Scott Aikman, who I guess I can name because he was in the Toronto Star. It seems a little dangerous to me to name someone who works undercover, but he went undercover working or pretending to be a DVD bootlegger. And he started up a friendship with Andrew. What he did is he staged this accident out front of his apartment. He loosened some of the lug bolts on his tire and then asked him for help and then offered him a beer. And, of course, voila, a bromance begins. Um, And then he sort of pulled him into this DVD bootlegging thing by, you know, the offer of making a bunch of money under the table. And then, of course, introduced him to his boss, Mr. Big, who was played by Hamilton detective Paul Statz. So for a whole year, Scott partied it up with Andrew. And according to Scott, at one point, Andrew actually became suspicious when he said um, no to smoking some weed. So he, Scott says, so he had a couple of puffs for his own safety. I think I kind of like this guy. Now, Scott Aikman was honored for his undercover work in this case. Um, He did a very good job. So one night in 2011, Scott and Andrew went together to a hockey game. And while they were walking back through the parking lot towards the car, a non-undercover officer from Barrie, who had been working the case so Andrew knew him and he was in on this sort of ruse. He approached Andrew and told him, I know that you killed Alexandra. So Scott, of course, you know, acts like, what? What are they talking about? Take And when they get back to Andrew's apartment, he, Andrew says, like, is this going to get me reported to the boss? Uh, I guess being under suspicion for murder probably isn't the best thing for the the DVD bootleg industry. So Scott told him that he, he, he had a feeling and he knew that he'd done it because they, of course, this operation had judges and cops on the payroll and in his words, tentacles everywhere. Um, and that this was going to make him a liability to the organization. So Scott took Andrew to see Paul Uh, who was Mr. Big, and Paul told him that they could make his problem go away by getting a guy that was already serving life in prison to take the rap for it. 
But that, of course, they needed all the details and they needed her torso so that they could get rid of that for him. Uh, It was only a matter of time before the police were going to get enough evidence against him. So he, Andrew said, if you can make this go away, I will give you my life. To which Paul responded, yeah, you got a monkey on your back. And Andrew told him, it's not a monkey, it's an elephant. And then, of course, he starts to tell the story. Now, I do not have access to the transcripts or the audio tapes that were played in court, but the Beyond the Rainbow podcast um, obviously did, because they did a reenactment uh, of the the undercover tapes. But basically, he does the o, the patented OJ, if I did it, um, kind of thing, and never really takes responsibility. He just says, well, I guess if I did it, I would have done it this way. Um, lays it all out for them, even draws them a map, uh, which directed them to Alex's torso, which he hid right across the street from a police station near Rose Street on uh, Highway 400 and Bayfield Street. I mean, ballsy, I'll give him that. Um, This was only blocks from his apartment, which was also on Rose Street. And which we'll find out he left him. He left the torso there because it was just it was heavy, so he just didn't want to take it very far. Now he never says why he killed Alex, um, but in rather graphic fashion, he does say that he strangled her with what he thought was a T-shirt uh, while he was actually on top of her. He then burned her clothes and cut her up in his bathtub, um, putting the pieces into this hockey bag. And then cleaning up with dish soap and bleach, which is why the forensic analyst, Dave Sibley, who had sprayed the apartment with luminol, hadn't been able to come up with anything that they were able to use. Um, Then he took a city bus around the town, just sort of dumping body parts hither and yon. And then I obviously the torso was heavy, so he dumped that in front of near his house, but in front of a police station. So obviously Andrew Keene was arrested. He was charged with second degree murder and indignity to a human body at the trial, which didn't start until June, 2015. So this is eight years after her murder, which means eight years of freedom and going on about with his stupid little life. Um, Andrew's lawyer, Mitch, Mitch Eason suggested that he had not intentionally killed Alex and then therefore he was not guilty of murder. He also said that Andrew had drank an entire Texas Mickey that night so he was obviously not in his right mind and even went so far as to suggest that Andrew was the victim of extortion and had only confessed because he was worried about being told that he was a liability to this crime boss but kind of interesting that he knew where her torso was. In the end, he was convicted um, on both counts and sentenced to life with eligibility for parole after 17 years. Wendy, Alex's mom, said, quote, We're very happy. It couldn't have gone better. It hasn't hit home. It's kind of, I guess it'll take a few days for us to really sink in for all of us. I'm sure if Alex is up there somewhere, she's smiling down today and she's very happy. Andrew will be eligible for parole in 2008 and is serving his sentence in Kingston, which of course he appealed. And in October of 2020, an Ontario Court of Appeal panel denied his request to have his conviction. He wanted his conviction of murder and then this indignity 
to human remains overturned uh, and then to have his sentence reduced. He wanted 12 years of eligibility for parole. Um, now, the board stated in their decision that, quote, the evidence in relation to di- the dismemberment of Miss Flanagan's body and the disposal of her remains about Barry, coupled with the victim impact statements from her family, parents, sister, and aunt, speak to the horrific nature of the appellant's crimes. The recommendation of nine jurors that the appellate be subjected to a 25-year period of parole ineligibility reflects their assessment of the brutal and shocking nature of the appellant's actions. Wendy says for her, it will never be over and that she is going to fight every single one of Keene's attempts to get out of prison, parole, all of it. Um, She says that he is not remorseful and all he wants is just out of prison. There is a plaque with Alexandra Flanagan's name on a tree that's that's in Barry's Sunnydale Park that's in her memory. Now here's something interesting that I didn't know and I discovered in my research on this case. The Ontario Criminal Injuries Compensation Board denied Wendy Flanagan's application for her pain and suffering compensation for victims of violent crimes because she didn't actually witness her daughter's murder. To me, that is a little disturbing. What exactly is that funding for? I mean, it's funding for victims of violent crimes. I am sure that she lost time from work. Well, obviously she had to take time off work to attend the trial uh, and the appeals and any of the parole hearings that are going to come up. And the mental anguish alone... I mean, come on. But she was told that it didn't meet the criteria for compensation. And that was the disturbing and awful murder of Alexandra Flanagan. Badass, spitfire of a woman that I really wish I had been able to know in life. I just don't really get the dismemberment thing. I mean, I think from it would be disgusting enough to kill someone, but to have the intestinal fortitude to cut them up and put their parts in a bag and dispose of them, I just don't get it. I think it's a special kind of evil and so disrespectful of someone's life and spirit. On that note, I hope you will join me again next week for yet another case. I can't say that I'm running out of them anytime soon. Please rate, write a review, follow me on Instagram and Facebook, and keep on spreading the word. The review and rate thing really helps me to grow on Apple in particular. I'm trying to get a place on the Canadian charts and manage to stay there. Um, right now I kind of go on and then I drop off and then I'm on again. Um, now I don't really understand how Apple's algorithms work, but I do know that the the number of rates and that do make a difference. So if you haven't already, maybe just press that little fifth star on there or the fourth or whatever you think it deserves. And thank you so much for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.